Welcome to the Demystifying Diversity podcast, where each week we examine topics related to diversity, equity, and inclusion. I'm Dara Lise Lyons, and I'm speaking to you today from the stolen Lenape lands known as Philadelphia, utilizing the colonized space of the internet. In last week's episode, we explored the painful ramifications of LGBTQ exclusion from a wide range of spaces spanning the secular to the spiritual. If you haven't listened to that episode, please stop now, go back, and listen. It'll be helpful to have a sense of the ramifications of exclusion before delving into today's topic, inclusion. When it comes to LGBTQ inclusion, American society still has a long, long way to go. Even though LGBTQ individuals are part of every other community, identity, and social group that exists, and even when LGBTQ folks are welcomed and wanted, they still may find themselves as the only one or the first one to be included or invited. Reverend Naomi Washington Leaphart, the Director for Faith-Based and Interfaith Affairs for the City of Philadelphia and former Faith Outreach Director at the National LGBTQ Task Force, told me that she's well aware of the unique role she occupies and said that with that awareness comes a sense of empathy and responsibility. I don't really know how I feel about being the first of anything, but I will say that I think that I'm the first out queer person in this role in the city of Philadelphia. And that's significant because I think that the narrative still is that cishet people have cornered the market on faith. And that certainly we can't have a public faith leader who is not cisgender and straight serving, like I say, in this kind of high profile role. And so to me, it was an act of radical inclusivity and hospitality for the mayor to appoint me to this position, knowing that there might have been some blowback. You know, it didn't come to me, but I don't take for granted that people would want someone like me in this role. So because the table has been widened for me, it's my obligation to widen the table for others and, you know, I have learned over the last several years since I've been out and I've been pretty unapologetic about my commitment to still living into my call to ministry, my call to professional religious life, as I like to say. I am clear that I have some sensitivities that perhaps others may not have. I know what it means to be deemed not only illegitimate, but abominable. I know what it means to have your mic cut off. I know what it means to be disinvited and not invited. So it was really important to me that any table that I have the, the power and privilege to set be a welcoming space, not just in rhetoric, but in deed. When we think of sitting at a shared table, we think of belonging, togetherness, and mutual exchange. We might think of family dinners or the many biblical invocations of people, quote-unquote, breaking bread together. There's value in sharing space at the same table with those who are both like and unlike us. I think that what a diverse table does is curbs 
the ego, right? James Baldwin said, I'm gonna butcher this quote, but he said something to the effect of, you think you're the only person in the world with your problems, with your loneliness, with your concerns, with your issues, right? And then you read and you find out that, that that's not the case, right? That's what I think diversity does. It takes us outside of ourselves long enough to know that we are not the center of the universe and it humbles us that there are actually other people who we might be living right next to, we might be very proximate to, but who are experiencing life in a completely different way. And that is, that is both kind of awe-inspiring and in some ways deeply troubling, right? That, that we can all be walking along, perhaps even in the same context, and be experiencing completely different lives, right? So, you know, and then I think, you know, all the other ways that diversity is helpful, right? That, that we have richer conversations and we have um, better food, frankly, and we have, right, all of these things that we bring. But I think that that notion of displacing the ego from the center, right? And you realize, wow, there are other people. <laughs> Naomi didn't butcher Baldwin's quote at all, but nonetheless, I'll share his exact words. Baldwin said, You think your pain and your heartbreak are unprecedented in the history of the world, but then you read. It was books that taught me that the things that tormented me most were the very things that connected me with all the people who were alive, who had ever been alive. In addition to being a writer, Baldwin was once a preacher. He was also a same-gender-loving Black man, and what he and Reverend Naomi shared about cultivating a capacity for empathy through exposure to diversity is part of how we come to see the inner light, dare I say, the inner divinity in ourselves and others. Wonderfully Made comes from Psalm 139, where it says, I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. It's saying that everybody is wonderfully made. Everybody is made in the image of goddess. Everybody has that divine energy within them. Everybody is wonderfully made, which means that everybody must be accepted and included. Everybody has a seat at the table. You don't have to agree with everybody at the table, but they're still there. So you know what? Pass the salad. <laughs> Love that. Care the wine. That was Yuval David, award-winning actor, host, filmmaker, and advocate whose most recent work, a full-length documentary entitled Wonderfully Made, came about as part of Yuval's effort to showcase the beauty of LGBTQ plus religiosity with an emphasis on Catholicism. Yuval's husband, Mark, who co-produced the film, grew up Catholic and is still a practicing member of the faith. Yuval was raised Jewish. They honor one another's spirituality, which is what happens when we embrace inclusion. We become expanded to love's many possibilities. And this is true on an interpersonal and an organizational level. 
Reverend Rebecca Seely, Candidacy Coordinator and a leader of the Metropolitan New York Synod, Executive Director of the Vine New York City Campus Ministry Network, and Lutheran Ministries in Higher Education, who also serves as co-pastor of LAMP, pastor of PRISM, and as a chaplain at New York University, spoke about how it is the divine duty of religious communities to open their doors, their hearts, and the scope of their service to support all people, whatever their faith. I think sometimes like more liberal or progressive, like churches or religious bodies can be like, oh, the work that we have to do is like around inclusion and like we've succeeded if we've decided like hey gay people you can come too you can come into our building with us and like sing and feel good about your you know like experience this wonderful community or or feel like god loves you or you're saved or something but to me i'm like that's i mean that inclusion is important but like what are we even doing if all we're doing is just like inviting more people into a little closed club of people who are special or who are no God or something like that. I guess what I'm just trying to say is like, I think that it can't be about just adding another included group to the list, but it has to be about like blowing up the idea that some people are in and some people are out in the first place. Faith can't be about being saved. It's like, if we know God's love, we don't truly know it unless that love sends us out to like share it with someone else and make someone else's life better. Like whether that's trying to change terrible systems of injustice, which are so pervasive in our country, or directly like helping someone in need through like a food pantry. I mean, I think it has to be both and. There is no there there to our faith if our faith isn't sending us out and inspiring us and empowering us to love our neighbors and to love our neighbors through social justice, through direct service. I think that anytime there is somebody who is oppressed and a victim of violence and marginalized, like that's where Jesus is. If you're looking for Jesus in church, yeah, he's there too. But we know that the way that we act as Jesus's hands and feet in the world, if we read our Bible, right, we talk about the Bible, is to show up in the places where Jesus would show up and is with people who are suffering. And I think that's the purpose. It's not just to like add another group of people like, yeah, queer people can be saved too. That's not what this is about. This is about like the world transformed by like a love that doesn't have boundaries. I would assert that the LGBTQ plus community as a whole has been standing for a world transformed by a love that doesn't have boundaries since the beginning, and it still is standing for those things, and that spirituality can also benefit from expanded conceptions of love, and that we as people can benefit from exposure to diversity of spiritual beliefs and experiences. Take for us to fight it To realize that we all are one Make unity and inner peace The only reason Cause we need better Need so much better We deserve better Here is Kelly Invier, the author of Where the Light Shines Through, a memoir in poetry. 
I am extremely unconventional when it comes to spirituality. And that's another thing my parents got remarkably correct for me. I was not raised anything. I was not raised Christian. I was not raised Jewish. I was not raised Islamic. I was not raised pagan. I was not raised anything in particular. And I was raised everything in general. My parents would present me with, here's Buddhist teaching, and here's Hindu teaching, and here's Christian teaching, and here's everything that's available to you. Here's, you know, Taoism. These are like the Eastern philosophies and here's paganism. And then here's like kind of modern Wicca. That's where that's kind of come to and take what you like and anything that doesn't feel good to you, you don't need to take. And so while I really appreciate what all religions and spiritual paths have to offer, for me, I needed to create my own pathway to a higher power, a connection to something greater than myself. And part of that higher power for me is the good in all of us. It is the kindness and love in all of us. That is what, and to use this term very loosely, God is to me. There's a beautiful line in a song by Jewel, we are that to which we pray. And I think that is one of the most powerful things that sums up my spiritual belief. I believe that we, as a collective of humanity, are the ones who are going to make the changes to help the needy, to help the sick, to help the tired. The things that we, you know, pray to God we're actually praying to ourselves. We're praying to our neighbors. We're praying to a stranger 500 miles away. We're praying to everyone. And it's that energy inside of us that has the potential to actually make meaningful change in the world. Whatever you believe in or don't believe in, you can offer something to the human collective and benefit from the love of others. I am an atheist, and as an atheist, I have a vibrant spiritual practice. I think it's necessary to make a sacred commitment to the primacy of our heart and our soul by creating a practice of personal replenishment that builds resilience and allows us to resist and carry forth and pave the way for those coming up behind us, especially because a huge swath of gay men were decimated due to AIDS and you know, in the 80s and 90s. And so there's just a huge gap of knowledge that would have been shared and is just missing. So I think that it is incumbent upon us to dig deep, even those of us who don't believe in a, in a supreme being, we can spiritual practices because we can to some power greater than ourselves by finding larger causes and committing to a greater good I can actually be more of myself, ironically, paradoxically, than if I were to just pursue my own wants and needs. That was Britt East, an inspirational speaker and award-winning, best-selling author of A Gay Man's Guide to Life, Get Real, Stand Tall, and Take Your Place. Britt and I spoke about the urgency of love within the LGBTQ plus community 
and how queer people have long been striving for the right to be authentically self-expressed and to love and be loved as their authentic selves. But the thing is, an unintended consequence of fighting to be recognized for one element of your identity is that outsiders can start to see you as one-dimensional and to fail to realize or appreciate your multi-dimensionality. Here's a short message from our episode sponsors, without whose support the Demystifying Diversity podcast wouldn't be possible. As we've seen more than ever in the last couple of years, health is critical, and a big part of physical, mental, and emotional health is providing our bodies with the nutrients they need, which is why I'm a big fan of supplements. But not just any supplements. I get all my supplements from Vita Supreme. The company's products are amazing, and they're offering Demystifying Diversity podcast listeners 10% off on everything at their online store. In fact, they've put together a special Demystifying Diversity podcast listener page where you can get any or all of my favorite supplements at vitasupreme.com pages diversity Or you can take a look at their website and purchase any of their many products. When you're ready to check out, just enter the code DIVERSITY to receive your 10% discount. That's vitasupreme.com slash pages slash diversity and enter the code DIVERSITY for 10% off. As you may or may not be aware, Demystifying Diversity podcast partner Zach James is a proud graduate of Temple University's School of Sport, Tourism, and Hospitality Management, STHM. Go Owls! And has experienced firsthand STHM's ongoing support and investment in each individual student. Both last season and this season, as part of their ongoing effort to prioritize diversity, equity, and inclusion in their business practices and strategic plan, STHM's Office of Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion has provided invaluable support and resources to the Demystifying Diversity podcast. And STHM's Office of Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion is taking an active role in so many other incredible initiatives, from spearheading student-facing DEI programming to faculty education to collaboration with various corporations and organizations. As the sport, tourism, and hospitality industries have become more globalized and integrated than ever before, STHM acknowledges their responsibility to help move these industries forward by minimizing polarization and creating equitable, inclusive, and diverse leaders. To learn more about Temple University's School of Sport, Tourism, and Hospitality Management, visit sthm.temple.edu. That's sthm.temple.edu. Here's Kelly again. If we truly examine ourselves, we're so incredibly intricate. And that's what makes us beautiful, I think, is our differences and our, you know, little nuances. Everything is shades of gray in this world. And people are constantly wanting to put you into categories because it makes more sense. 
if they can figure out who you are by, okay, so you're married to a woman, you are a lesbian, and this is what that means. And I'm like, well, that's one way you could put it, but <laughs> that's not a complete picture. You're, it's kind of like pointillism, if you will, like painting, where you can be up close on something and there are all these beautiful dots of color just everywhere, little dots of color that form these amazing little shapes and clouds and things when you're up close that you can't recognize what's actually happening. It's very abstract. But then my father taught me at a very young age to then very slowly step back and watch the entire picture emerge. And I think that's a really beautiful way of putting it is all of these pieces of who I am, all of these labels that people want to use for me are these little dots of color. And when you step back, you see the whole person. If we want to cultivate closeness and community with people of all identities, we have to take into account the vastness that each of us holds inside ourselves. Angelique Gravely, known to most people as Angel, is a bisexual educator, writer, speaker, and advocate based in the Philadelphia area, and she stresses the importance of addressing LGBTQ plus issues from an intersectional lens. When intersectionality is not a core part of teaching about sexuality and gender, people get left out. And the people who get left out are the people who most need that support. So thinking about my education about LGBTQ plus topics in college, it was all separated from race. And as one of a handful of Black LGBTQ plus students who were starting to be open about their identity on campus, the some of the things that are stated as fact are just not true for me because my racial identity is part of the development of my sexual identity. And I think that educators who forego intersectionality, because sometimes people have a very, um, we only have room to focus on one thing. If we talk about these other things, then it'll be too confusing for people and it'll be too much and they won't be able to handle it. But the reality is that you're not representing things accurately when you do that because there are, being a black queer person is very different than being a white queer person. Being a black trans woman is different than being a white trans woman because race and sexuality and gender can't just be separated for us. And I, it's sometimes hard to talk about like, this is why it's important because to me it's so clear because it's my lived reality. But also if you just look at statistics, you can see that there are different experiences once you start looking at race or start looking at disability, start looking at all of these different things. Even when you're looking at just gender and sexuality based on different identities, there are different experiences. So, of course, when you start layering things on, there are going to be different experiences. And I think our goal as educators needs to not be to water things down, but to teach complex things in easily digestible ways so that people who are most 
targeted in our communities are having their needs understood and met, which you can't do without intersectionality. Robin Oakes is a bisexual educator, a speaker, a grassroots activist, and the editor of Bi Women Quarterly, as well as the editor of two bi-plus-specific anthologies, the 42-country collection Getting By Voices of Bisexuals Around the World and Recognize the Voices of Bisexual Men. Like Angel, Robin stresses the importance of intersectional education. All of my programs... I talk about intersectionality and, you know, which is, of course, the experience of having multiple marginalized identities. But I think underneath the concept of intersectionality is the understanding that all of us have multiple identities and that every one of our identities impacts and affects the way we experience every other one of our identities. And that, to me, is one of the reasons, for example, why there is no like one thing called bisexual. Like, what is the experience of being bisexual? Well, it depends on your age and your geographic location and your political position and your religious or spiritual background and your race and your everything, right? It depends on everything about you. And I think actually this idea has informed all of my work. I used to believe that I could get up in front of a group of people and tell my personal story and that when I was done, everyone would understand what it was like to identify as bisexual. I don't (laughs) think that's true anymore because I strongly believe that in order to understand the experience of being bisexual, you need multiple stories from multiple people with multiple different identities. And if you read 50 stories and you put them together and synthesize them in your own mind, then maybe you'll have a sense of what it's like to identify as bi, because there is no one experience. Because there is no one experience of any identity, if we want to know more about someone else, we have to take the time to slow down and see them. And this requires not only curiosity, but intimacy. And it's pretty clear that the intimacy has to begin with ourselves. Getting to know yourself from the deepest, most inner part of the core of your being is probably the most powerful relationship you will ever form, and it will help every relationship in your life. In terms of how to cultivate an empowered and authentic sense of self, Britt offered this advice. Find places and activities and spaces where you can shine, where you can embody and exude those qualities in a way that nobody else can, and where you will be most seen. There's an art to that. And then go do it. And also create space. So let go of any... Um, attachment you might have to outcomes, release the energy of engineering any situations, and allow there to be space for the universe to do its magic. When Britt speaks of creating space, what he means on a practical level is this. I want us to take up more space as queer people, just to lead with our elbows a little bit, to carve out a niche for ourselves. And that's going to require some resilience and some resistance. And we're going to have to do a little bit of fighting, not in an angry way necessarily, but just in a self-actualized, empowered, authentic way. Like, no, this is my birthright. This is the space due to me in this world because I take an air, because I exist. And I'm going to be all of myself. We are a multitude of identities and experiences and qualities and characteristics, and we need spaces where we can bring our full selves forward. 
Ideally, this would begin early on and then be reinforced throughout our lifetimes. While many LGBTQ plus youth do not have that experience, there are those who do, and their examples show how, when people are loved and affirmed for all of the elements of their identity, they are free to be their fullest, most well-rounded selves. Hi, Zach James here, partner and marketing manager of the Demystifying Diversity podcast. And I wanted to share with you, our valued listeners, some of the awesome things we're doing in the DEI space. Myself, Darylise, and the whole Demystifying Diversity team are facilitating corporate trainings, constructive conversations, workshops, one-on-one coaching sessions, and so much more. To find out how you can work with us, whether you're an individual or representing a corporation, school, or any other organization, head over to DemystifyingDiversityPodcast.com backslash services to fill out our DEI survey. Darylise is a DEI subject matter expert, having interviewed over 200 people, having become a TEDx speaker, as well as the author of Demystifying Diversity, Embracing Our Shared Humanity. Together, we can help you up-level your DEI skills to improve your profitability, productivity, and interpersonal relationships. So, connect with us at DemystifyingDiversityPodcast.com backslash services and get yourself a copy of Darylise's book, Demystifying Diversity, Embracing Our Shared Humanity. And uh, don't forget, buy the workbook too. Happy learning. Here is Kathy Renna, the principal of Target Q and communications director at the National LGBTQ Task Force. Kathy has played a central role in shaping nearly all major issues affecting media representation of the LGBTQ plus community since the 1990s. I work with a group called Gender Cool, which is an amazing organization based out of Chicago that works with trans and non-binary youth and adolescents that they call their champions. And all of these kids come from very affirming families. And the goal of the organization is to put out positive and affirming stories because they know that the vast majority of what we see is not, and they want people to see what's possible. Just last Friday, there was a piece in USA Today about Trans Awareness Week. And when the reporter reached out to me, she was very clear. She said, look, it is absolutely vital that we recognize that there is an epidemic of violence against trans women, particularly trans women of color in this country and around the world. It is clear that the Trump administration has basically tried to erase the trans community, whether through a ban on the military, whether through the Department of Education going through with removing all the protections that were put in place for students by the Obama administration, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. It's a long list. At the same time, she wanted to make sure that we gave people hope. And so she wanted to talk to young trans folks with affirming families. So she talked to some of the gender cool kids who talked about the fact that for them, being trans is like the third most interesting thing about them. You know, that, that when you grow up in an environment where you are allowed to be who you are and think about all the things you want to do and the potential that you have, what a difference that makes. And she also wanted to talk to older trans folks to get that context and that experience. And she talked to one of my colleagues at the task force, Barbara Satin, who's 86 years old who did not come out as trans until she was in her 50s and talked about, um, there's a film about a woman named Mama Gloria, who's based in Chicago, who is now in her 80s as well, who transitioned pre-Stonewall 
with an affirming family and then created a life where she tried to be supportive of young trans women coming out because she saw the environment they were coming out in. That story sort of tried to encapsulate all of those different things and put them into context so that we're not just looking at things in a way that's sort of black and white, but that's more gray. That kind of conversation, it's why I love working with the task force because they've been around almost 50 years and they've gotten it from the beginning. Like we have a campaign called all of me all of the time for a reason. I mean, we don't just bring one thing to the table. Imagine the freedom of being all of yourself all of the time, loved and embraced not only by your chosen family, as so many LGBTQ folks are, but by your family of origin, and of being part of a family and a network that embraces others for who they are. Thank God for family. Thank God for family. My mom raised five boys. Five amazing Black men, educated us all, never been on drugs, never been in jail. But she instilled foundation of strength, hard work, determination, and she sat with us every day. And she had one-on-one time. Even as busy as she was, she made it feel like the world stopped just enough for racing. And she allowed me to be in my fullness. You know, I had to take her through this journey there. It wasn't easy there, you know. I remember sometimes when she would say, if people ask me if I'm your son or your daughter, what am I supposed to say? I said, tell them I'm your son and tell them to get over it, you know. But I had to show her. I had to teach her. They were things she had to learn because she was from a generation that didn't always accept who we were. But I, on this journey, I took my mom through helping her understand what transgender women and men were, that she watched many of my friends transition. She might've watched Tim become Tiffany, Jill become Joe. And I had to show her in that learning that mom, it's okay. Tiffany, if you're not too sure, you know Tiffany as Tim, the little boy who grew up around the corner is now this beautiful glamorous woman that stands before your face. So if you're not too sure, say, sweetheart, I can't think of your name right now, but aren't you beautiful? Or sit down and talk to them. And she would always say that. And she would watch my friends and we would carry our pocketbooks and we would twirl up and down the street and we would be just as colorful as we could be. She loved the spirit of them being authentic. And if she saw that and she knew it and she could feel it, she would always sit and talk with them. And she always said, oh, I would love Daryl. I love Tracy. Oh, I love Monica. I love her. She's so wonderful. She's so fabulous. Oh, I just love her. You know, I love her spirit. And I love the fact that she talks about her parents or grandparents or how they would take the time to talk with my mother and honor her in her presence. Now, it wasn't always for a lot of my friends had that kind of feeling. Some friends were rejected, some were put out, some had to do whatever they had to do to survive. And it wasn't always pretty. And it was sometimes in dark places. Some we lost to the streets and some we did not. But they always knew that they could find some place of peace and solitude when they would come around my family or myself. And even if they were not the beautiful person that we remembered and they were at a very vulnerable point, they could always come and just sit and we would feed them, if not their spirit, their soul or their body. 
and say, it's okay. You're going to get through this. You're going to be all right. And I learned that sometimes folks go through a phase in their life where they're in a very dark space. But even in that darkness, I have to be the light. I have to be that light. I have to be that light. That was Racine Pendarvis, father of five, grandfather of two, mother of many. Racine's mother, who recently passed, was a beacon of light and love for so many people. And through her background as a social worker, she showed Racine how to sit with and support others, just as Racine showed her how to honor and embrace those who were being their authentic selves. As Racine said, that type of love and acceptance wasn't something everyone had, but it should be. Having the ability to be who your soul and spirit call you to be, both privately and publicly, is such a gift and creates such a space of grace. And we can light the path for one another. Speaking of acceptance and authenticity and the ability to shine, what could be a more public, more spectacular experience than pride? Known as the Empress of Pride and the Goddess of D.C., Racine has been at every Pride celebration in Washington, D.C. since the very first one in 1975 and told me about how beautiful it has been to celebrate LGBTQ plus identity in all of its diversity. Oh, my God, Pride, what it means to me, and and especially in D.C., in this city, the nation's capital, growing up, being a native Washingtonian, being able to experience everything because we are in a city that if folks who don't understand the importance of freedom, because everybody can't be free in places. And I understand that folks can't be free in Jamaica, can't be free in Africa, can't be free in Uganda, can't be free in India, in places because of their sexuality and the religious restraints and the political restraints, that fear of being who they are can have their life taken or be in prison. So then when I look at pride and all of what that represents, especially in Washington, D.C., the joy, it represents everything that we've been through. Pride is not just about a party. It's about the rebellious spirit to be, to exist in a space that we create and call our own and can control where other folks that look and think and are a part of that rainbow and that LGBTQIA experience, young, old, folks who are believers and non-believers, where we can be in a, a space of communion, fellowship, And to be able to look around and stand up and turn around and you see Tiffany who was seven feet tall and and in a beautiful Marilyn Monroe dress with a full beard. And she is in her element. And she says, I'm Marilyn and you believe it. And you look at her and she is Marilyn and in all of the essence of Marilyn. And that kind of feeling what pride represents. And then being able to say in my lifetime, I have lived to see every pride they have in this city. 
the first Capitol Pride and what that meant, this colorful parade. And we were in various locations through the city. I remember when we first had it in the DuPont Circle area, downtown, P Street, and moving all over the city. And now to have it on Pennsylvania Avenue, you know, in front of the Capitol. And it goes blocks and blocks and blocks. Then we had the celebration 30 years ago of Black Pride and what that meant, honoring those who are part of that Blackness, harnessing the Blackness, the, the elements of meeting people from all over the world. When I would stand and walk out on that stage and I would talk about the importance of what this means, because there's somebody in this audience who can't be free in your country, in your city, or where you are, but I'm gonna celebrate your blackness, celebrate your queerness, celebrate your gayness, your transism, all of that in that space. And then having some people come over to me and say, Racine, I'm from South Africa and I can't be free in South Africa. But when I heard about Black Pride in Washington, DC, I came and thank you. And I was like, oh my God, you know, I'd cry because that would be so overwhelming. And then we, to see trans pride, the importance of why sometimes we have to have, people didn't understand why we had to have all these different prides because sometimes we have to celebrate each uniqueness and all of the letters in our community. We had to speak to our trans brothers and sisters, not speak just when they get killed, but celebrate them while they're living and celebrate the richness and understanding the power and what they are, who they are and having the right to be. And because of them, we have all of what we have. It was these warriors, transgender warriors who were on the front line first. And then to celebrate our Asian Pacific Islander pride and the uniqueness and the culture and the richness and all of that in that space that they are bringing all of their people, their, their ancestors to the table and their queerness to the table. And then our Latinx pride, all of that, the flavor, the spices, all part of that gumbo of life that you needed a little, someone needed to feel like Celia Cruz and Lada Lupe to be in that space and what it was like in mixing their queerness of all of that Latinx and youth, our young people, twirling, marching, going to their prom in full drag. Something that my peers and my fellow peers could not do. And how wonderful that is in that space of youth pride and then silver pride our AAARP members celebrating me and my ability to say, yes, I made it. I made it and I earned it. Gray hair and all that I have a right to be there. And let me tell you, young people, in understanding, just because we all weighing cold, we still living and I can still kick and twirl with the best of them and high kick like a rocket. And then speak to needs of what it is like aging in our community and feeling like sometimes we are not seen or sometimes in spaces when it comes to pride, 
that sometimes in that parade, you don't see enough gray hair folks, walkers or canes anymore, because we feel like we don't have a space sometimes. But to have silver pride, where we can roll up in our walkers and our electric wheelchairs and talk about hip replacement, knees aching, joints, preparing wheels, social security, and all of that when it relates to who we are as LGBTQIA people. How important is that? That's amazing. People at all ages and stages of life have a need to be seen for who they are and to live in the fullness of their identity. And many communities not only recognize that, but celebrate it in everything from the glory and glitter of pride to publications like By Women Quarterly to our places of worship and our faith communities. We need to be able to see ourselves in the mirror. We need to be able to see ourselves reflected. We need to find aspects of ourselves reflected in other people's stories because that makes us feel possible. That makes us feel like it's possible to be who we are. Like within the, like the Christian tradition, for instance, there are some denominations that are just really publicly welcoming. So I'm a pastor in the Evangelical Lutheran Church in America, which has been 10 years is both a long time and a short time, but has been openly ordaining LGBTQ pastors for 10 years, even before that um, in New York City and the surrounding areas where I am. Our synod, which is like our regional body, has been had LGBTQ pastors and inclusion has been really essential for much longer than that. But there are other denominations too in the Christian tradition. And similarly, particularly in Judaism, it's not hard to just like Google around and say like, hey, what are the welcoming religious bodies out there. But then, you know, my recommendation to people would be like, if being part of an inclusive faith community is important to you, which I hope it is, whether you are LGBTQ or not, to go on like the website of the church or synagogue or whatever that you want to visit and see if they mention this, see if they talk about this at all, um, if they have like a welcome statement. If they don't, and you still are even interested, maybe like email the pastor or the religious leader, because Sometimes there's kind of this idea for churches that are actually not welcoming and inclusive and affirming and celebrating of, you know, LGBTQ people that like, they don't want to like seem like jerks. So they just don't say anything and hope nobody really asks and like, don't really mention it and say like, we're not political. But like, the reality is that, in my opinion, the implication of saying nothing is you're not welcome. And so I would only want to be part of a church or a religious community that was like really explicit in its welcome of an affirmation of people of any gender, of any sexual orientation, of any race, of, you know, obviously a welcome statement isn't everything. You have to live that out. But the, the first step is to say like, I see that you've been excluded in the past and I want you here now and I value you. And I think to me that's baseline and that should be on like the website or Facebook page or whatever of any religious community I would want to be part of. In Rebecca's case, since she wasn't raised in a religious community and had no exposure to religion prior to becoming interested in theology in college, she hasn't had to overcome experiences of exclusion as part of her faith walk. But she has found that she had biases about how she might be received within Christianity and that that wasn't the case once she sought out spiritual communities that were open-minded and embracing. And I just got so interested in theology and in faith and learned that dominant media narrative about Christianity was not 
the only one, but that there were like Christianities, right? There were Christianities that worked for like the poor and the oppressed and put justice and love and inclusion at the center, not condemning people or moralism or like family values or conservative family values, but that there were like Christians out there who were absolutely stake your life on it, convinced that God was not remotely worried about people's sex lives or gender identities, but was deeply worried anytime anybody was rejected or ostracized or condemned, that God weeps, right, with every young person who attempts suicide or is kicked out or is bullied, to be able to be like, oh, there's a whole different truth here that like I missed because these people were just yelling mean stuff. That was beautiful for me. There are people of all faiths who love other people exactly as they are for all of who they are. And people whose form of faith exists outside the scope of religion entirely and which doesn't subscribe to the notion that there is a deity. And whatever our systems of belief, hopefully they're inspiring us to love and inclusion. And if they're not, then they're not of God and they're not for people. It's kind of a cliche these days, but I I really believe that we are all in this together and that if each of us took just a little less, we would all have so much more. And that at the end of the day, there is no greater wisdom than kindness. It is cliche, maybe, but it's also true. And part of kindness requires getting to know people as they are and being there for them as they need. There's no space for superiority in empathy or in education. It was kind of surprising to talk to Angel, who works as a school counselor, about how she approaches being there for her students as they grapple with identity challenges or seek out their authentic sense of self and share that process with her. I always say I don't consider myself an expert. I consider myself a learner with the people that I'm teaching. And so it's always a space for us to learn together. So I will often say at the beginning of when I'm talking, some of this may be familiar to some of you, some of this may be completely new, because I don't want to make assumptions about how much people I'm talking to know or don't know. Because in the past, like I have made assumptions and then have been pleasantly surprised that there are some people who knew a lot more than I expected. So now I just go into it knowing that I'm going to learn new things from teaching people, and hopefully some of the people will learn new things. And if there are things that I don't know, usually I, what I can say is that I'm really good at knowing, okay, if I don't know it, here are some resources that might have a better answer for you. Or saying sometimes the questions are questions that just need to be worked out with time. Like I was a GSA advisor at my old job for middle school. And so some of their questions are really personal questions about identity and what even is gender (laughs) and things like that, that are things that they just have to, it's really just holding space to say, keep questioning because that's an answer that you're going to have to live into. And so I'm going to keep providing you resources. I'm going to keep providing you space to try out new pronouns, to try out new names and to be affirmed. But some questions can't be answered by anyone but you. 
This ability to be with others as they are and to support them in their process wherever they are while they discover their inner essence and how they want to express that to the world requires humility and patience. And it's something we can all model, whether in a secular space such as Angel with her high school students or in a religious space like what Reverend Rebecca Seely does with those exploring the possibility of ministry. In addition to being like a campus pastor, essentially, and chaplain, um, I'm also the candidacy coordinator for the Metropolitan New York Synod of the Lutheran Church. And so what that means is that I walk with people who are exploring or discerning whether or not they want to become pastors or deacons in the church. So that is folks from all age groups, all walks of life. And so a lot of, of what I do is pray with them, have exploratory conversations with them, but also help them through the process of being formed and educated and sort of trained as leaders for the church. So it's exciting for me to see how many women and queer people and people of color are coming up because the the Lutheran church is, is a historically white church and we're still a pretty white church. We've got a lot of work to do to have our churches fully reflect the diversity of our country and our communities. But just seeing the way that sort of groundbreaking people, um, you know, women, queer people, um, queer women, women of color coming to leadership in the church, I think has paved the way for this like explosion of candidates out there who are like, candidates is like a technical word, but people out there who are like, oh, I could do this too. And I have gifts to share. And like, I can go out there and be in this role that for so long, like only men were allowed to be in, or only straight people were allowed to be in, or in this church, only white men were allowed to be in. So I think it's really exciting to just be like, whoa, there's an amazing diversity of people who are out there who are going to help lead the church into what it is becoming, which maybe is not the same dominant sort of monolithic social force it used to be, but hopefully is this incredible agent for change in local communities and actually reflects the diversity and beauty of, of the world that God has made. Reverend Rebecca told me that she sees all people as having amazing gifts and talents to share, and that being able to bear loving witness to the process of self-discovery has been of tremendous benefit to her, both personally and professionally. And that's the thing about loving people who are committed to expanding the boundaries of love. Your heart can't help but be stretched by it. There are people who love respond to LGBTQ people with love and recognize that the LGBTQ community is truly a community that's all about love. It's about how we love, who we love and how we love. So once people have that enlightened awareness, they say, oh, okay, well, if they're all about love and religion is supposed to be about love and defining life and getting to a happier place and making us feel better about everything, then how can we not include these people? Yuval's point is wonderfully made. Communities of love, whether they be LGBTQ specific or inspired by faith or both, should be invested in setting a diverse table. And practically speaking, what that means is that we all need to be invested in working towards creating a world in which everyone, LGBTQ plus and not, cares about equality and inclusion for LGBTQ plus folks of every identity who belong to every other community. Hi, listeners. Zach here. Darylise and I are so grateful you're listening to the Demystifying Diversity podcast. We want to answer your questions about topics related to diversity, 
equity, and inclusion. And this season, during each of our question and answer episodes, we'll be joined by a special guest expert who can also weigh in on whatever questions you have. So call us at 844-888-8148 and leave us a message with your question or drop us a note through our website at demystifyingdiversitypodcast.com. Who knows, your voice or your question might make it into one of our Q&A episodes. Last week, you heard from Patrick Salmon, one of the co-authors and co-directors of the documentary Cured, which is an in-depth illumination of the struggle between LGBTQ activists and advocates and the American Psychiatric Association to remove homosexuality from its diagnostic manual of mental illnesses. Something that he said has really stuck with me. The success of the movement for LGBT equality has depended on both insiders and outsiders. And what I mean by that is at the heart of the movement has always been a group of activists from the outside protesting, putting pressure from the streets, trying to force change from the outside, metaphorically throwing rocks from outside the fence. And that activism and energy has been essential to the progress. But the other piece of the equation that has been essential to the progress are the insiders, the people working to translate that energy into actually changing policy and changing laws. And it's not enough to have the outside energy without the inside change agents. And it's not enough just to have the inside change agents without the pressure from outside. And that's been a theme throughout the LGBT civil rights movement, our history, whether you look at marriage equality or you look at the fight to end the don't ask, don't tell a ban and allow LGBT people to serve openly in the military. It's always been this pressure from insiders and outsiders. And when you look at other social change movement, it's the same thing. And often the insiders don't respect or like the outsiders and vice versa. And both of those roles are essential and they don't often coordinate with each other. But when you look at the big picture, you need both of those groups to bring about the change that's needed. Minimally, we should respect and like one another. Ideally, we would love one another and see the beauty that exists. But there's no way to get there without knowing other people personally and through authentic stories that represent them as they are, not as they might be misrepresented by others. Racine shared about being able to disarm those who have misconceptions about what it is to be trans. I've walked into rooms where folks don't like me. I know they don't like me. They've said they don't like us. But if I disarm you in love and in spirit, you're going to respect me. You ain't got to like me, but you're going to respect me. Because I'm going to love on you so much in that spirit that I've prepared myself already. I've put my armor on. You can't, you can't shake my armor because it's built by blood, brick, and sweat and tears. So what you can't, you can't tear down. So when I prepare myself and I walk into spaces like that, I'm already armed up and I'm already at a space that I'm a love on you, even while you're hating on me. And invariably, that hate stems from ignorance. Last week, you heard from Casey Suffredini, a nationally recognized campaign strategist and expert in LGBTQ issue advocacy, who is currently serving as CEO and National Campaign Director for Freedom for All Americans, a bipartisan organization whose mission it is to secure full non-discrimination protections for LGBTQ people nationwide. 
there is a whole scope of work that we do around really educating the public about who LGBTQ people are and helping people become more familiar, particularly with transgender people where through the marriage equality work, people became much more familiar with gay and lesbian people and same-sex couples, but they haven't had as many opportunities to get to know transgender people. Americans don't know transgender people as well. And that's why your listeners may have noticed that in the last five years, there is all of a sudden this huge surge in attacks on transgender people, both from our federal government, as well as from state governments, as well as in the public, um, you know, perpetuating all kinds of stereotypes and myths about who transgender people are. That is all about eroding what is otherwise very robust support for protections for LGBTQ people. One day, maybe people will be familiar enough with us that they're not as scared of us and don't feel like they need to treat us differently than they treat other people. Kathy Renna agreed that it is essential for people to learn about and have meaningful experiences with LGBTQ plus individuals, or at the very least to see their lives accurately represented. I've always thought that, you know, one of the most important ways for people to understand queer people is to either know someone in their lives or Second best scenario, especially in the U.S., is through media. I mean, media has such an incredible influence over our culture and what people know and understand about the world around them. And, you know, for LGBTQ people, it's been a vital part of the progress that we've seen and the ability to then make progress in other areas like policy and institutional change and uh, legislation and, and legal progress. And the thing is that whatever community you're a part of, whatever spaces and places you occupy, LGBTQ folks are there and are making contributions to that collective. LGBTQ people, we are the most diverse community because we happen to be part of every other community in the world. We're here. We've been here. We've been part of these communities forever. So What a great way to show that this is a Venn diagram, that people can have faith in spirituality and be LGBTQ at the same time. The rainbow is a symbol for the queer community for a reason. (laughs) You know, they say we are everywhere. I think we are also everything. And to me, that's been the joy in the work that I do is that I get challenged all the time. And my life is so much better for all the people that I've been able to to have in it. So let's all work toward being all of who we are and inviting people of all identities to join at each and every table we have access to, because there's more than enough room and more than enough love to share. Thank you for listening to the Demystifying Diversity podcast. If you haven't already, please take a moment to like, subscribe, rate, and review. 
And if you'd like to ask us a question, which we'll try to answer in an upcoming Q&A episode, please call 844-888-8148 and leave your question or comment. Or visit our website, demystifyingdiversitypodcast.com, where you can get in touch, subscribe to our newsletter, and find out more about our DEI trainings, workshops, coaching, consulting, and other DEI services. Thank you to those who so graciously lent their voices to this episode. Reverend Naomi Washington Leaphart, Reverend Rebecca Becca Seely, Racine Pendarvis, Yuval David, Robin Oaks, Angelique Angel Gravely, Kelly Invier, Britt East, Kathy Renna, Patrick Salmon, and Casey Suffredini. And thank you to our episode sponsors, Vita Supreme and Temple University's School of Sport, Tourism, and Hospitality Management. Every episode of the Demystifying Diversity podcast is written, reported, and produced by me, Daryleese Lyons, with the invaluable assistance of Zach James, co-collaborator and marketing manager, Paul Kondo, assistant producer and editor, Jimmy Goodman of Leopard Studio, who provided additional audio recording, Stuart Cranes, production and development assistant, and Sunny Taylor, content editor and creative collaborator. The music you heard is Better by Brittany Monet. If you'd like to explore these topics outside of the podcast, pick up a copy of Demystifying Diversity, Embracing Our Shared Humanity. Join us next week, and in the meantime, let's keep trying to make this a better, more inclusive world.